Let's, let's bow our head right now if we would. All right, dear Lord, thank you for this uh, morning. Thank you that you've given us all that we need for the life that you've called us to. Help us to live within those boundaries, those limits, that we might bear more fruit that remains through our ministry and through our uh, callings beyond just work, but also in home and also with people that we encounter every day. Help us now as we uh, quiet ourselves to think through the application of some of these areas of our life. Give us wisdom. Give us help. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, before Dr. Berg comes, I want to just alert you to a few things. One of those is that we have multiple copies of this Beginning Again with Hope, this new digest that we just put out. This is our fifth one. Even though it says four on there, it really was five. It's just an oversight. But it, multiple copies to put in your church foyer or in your place of business. This will help people think through the biblical connection between what they're struggling with and the hope that God offers. And then also, if you are so inclined, this, uh, if you want to take one of these today, you're free to do that as you leave. You're, you're the overflow people, so I can say this, right? But this is a crisis counselor training manual, and it's a free course online. You just go to our online school, and it's a four-session course, and it takes you through God's sovereignty, God's wisdom, God's love, and how to minister that to others. And then the other thing I'll introduce to you, if you haven't already seen it, is uh, we have combined four tracks, 16 years of, of uh, training into this one manual called Change That Sticks. We still have all four tracks, which is over 100 sessions, but this one brings 40 sessions together to help you or those at your church or business walk through personal change and also counselor training. And so that is in the back there, and that's completely online. And what I really am excited about that we do with our students now is they watch the course online, and then we get together at the center uh, four times during the course, three weeks apart, and what we do is we interview a counselee, person that's been counseled, on how they changed and what steps they took with their counselor. So it becomes a very practicum focus. Uh, they've learned on depression, and now they're coming to talk with someone who's went through depression with the counselor there to talk and ask questions about how did you process that. Because the how-to is very important, right? Uh, on Sunday morning, we we can get excited about who God is, and we try to put a little how in there, but it's really the private ministry of the Word. It's taking that Word to the individual that really bears the lasting fruit, right? So let's uh, consider that as you're thinking too. Uh, Jim, if you want to come, and I have a microphone, which maybe we won't need, but I'm going to use it just in case we do need it. But it's really a Q&A time. And Jim, I'm going to ask the first question. Can you talk about how to meditate biblically? How to do that? Okay. How's that for a start question? Is okay, that all right. Softball? How, uh, how to meditate. Yeah, how, do you, um, how, do you, how do you take Isaiah 55 and not just study it, but actually, you know, think it through or, or uh, I don't know. How do you quiet yourself as okay. you listen? Okay, I, that's a great question. Um, there, there are a lot of... Uh, <laughs> A lot of ways to meditate. 
um, in my, I teach one undergraduate course, and um, about every other class period, I will take a key biblical counseling text um, and walk through that with them. And I will just, I remember, I, I started with James 1 earlier this year, and I would read a verse, and then I would just ask questions. Uh, who is... Um, who is, who is God speaking to here? What, what is God's assumption? When God says, um, for example, fear thou not, for I am with thee, Isaiah 41.10, be not dismayed, for I am thy God. What is, what is he assuming about us that he would say that? Well, he's, he's assuming that we're fearful people and that we're easily discouraged. And so he has something to say about that. Every, every passage of Scripture is going to reveal to us something about God, or it's going to be revealed something about us that he's speaking to in that. So I want to teach my students, what is this saying about God? What is it saying about his disposition toward us? Was it saying about us that he should have to say that to us? And so I, I teach them just to ask a lot of questions. What does this show about God? Was it show about ourselves? Um, what fallen human condition is this addressing? Um, our, 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 our vulnerability, our, our worrisomeness, our uh, anger, our sense of injustice. What, what is he addressing here? But I, I teach, I say when you, when you read your Bible, you need to be asking those kinds of questions. Um, uh, one way to, a, a very elementary way to, um, to meditate on a passage of Scripture, and I don't say that in any pejorative way about uh, elementary way, <clears throat> is I, I taught my daughters this. We have three uh, uh, daughters. They're all adults, uh, married, and 11 grandchildren. And um, one of them is um, a pastor's wife in inner city downtown South Chicago in the hood. And um, so... Uh, she and her husband do a lot of meditating. <laughs> uh, it's a very dangerous situation they're in up there. Another daughter and her husband are way out up in northern panhandle of Texas in Dalhart next to the Oklahoma border in big cow country up there. And um, not a lot of fellowship with other people. And uh, our third daughter and her husband both teach at, at BJU. Um, but early on, beginning even in fifth and seventh grade, it taught them how to meditate. And one of the ways to do that is just take a, for, for example, fear thou not, for I am with thee, Isaiah 41.10. Read it emphasizing each word differently. Fear thou not, for I am with thee, be not dismayed. Fear thou, and think about the implication. Why is that word there? What is that saying? Fear thou not, for, that means, that means me. Fear thou not. What does that mean in this thing? Fear thou not for. God's going to say something um, that moves us beyond here. For, for I and I am with thee. And you just go through every single word and emphasize it. Read it, emphasizing it just that way. And I encourage them to read it out loud. And what it does is make you stop and think. I, I consider those kinds of techniques speed bumps in the parking lot. They make you slow down and spend more time there. So take each one of the words and emphasize it. Um, uh, at a leadership camp that I teach in the summer at, at the Wilds, a CIT program, 
um, I give them 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 4 through 8a. And I tell them on a sheet of paper, I want you to write down every one of those words. Love suffereth long, is kind, and just go down there. And then I say, you probably didn't bring a dictionary with you to camp this week, right? Well, I want you to write out, anyway, make up your own definition for every one of those words. Write it out, even the word not. And write it out. And then I want you to paraphrase that verse in your own words, using words out of your own definitions. Paraphrase it. And, um, and then I want you to think through it. Since God is love, take your paraphrase and instead of the word love, put God in there. God suffers long. God is kind. What, what if you, and ask yourself questions. What, what, if, what if God weren't kind? What, what if God had bad days? Can you imagine what that'd be like? What if God woke up grumpy? You know, I, I would not want to be on planet earth if God was grumpy. And, but God is kind and he suffers long. And so I, I have him write out the word, every word in that passage. I have them write out a definition of it. Then I have them paraphrase it. All I'm doing is making them get the meaning of it and put it in their own words. And by doing all of this, by writing it out, every word, it has to go through their brain once. Writing out a definition, it has to go through their brain a little bit more. Writing a paraphrase makes them have to do it even more. And by the time they've done that, they have a pretty good sense of what this passage is about. Um... That's one technique. Another one that I use is uh, I tell them to write um, an anti-scripture. <clears throat> so take, um, take Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, let's, and let's make that into an anti-scripture. Um, Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Okay, let's rewrite it. Avoid me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will refuse you rest. Refuse my yoke and don't learn of me and you will not find rest for your soul. So I make them put, I just put it all in the opposite. I, I make them take I, Psalm 23 and put it into an anti-psalm. Um, when I am my shepherd instead of the Lord, I'm constantly in want. And just rewrite it um, in the negative part of it. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we humans... Uh, identify with the negative part far more than the positive part oftentimes. And it's just a great way to, to meditate. So just techniques like that that make you stop and... So they're speed bumps. They make you stop and spend more time in the passage. <clears throat> but, God, but the most important component in meditation is that this is a message from God himself to us. A person wrote this for a person. And I, I, I teach a, a, a seminary class for all the seminarians on um, a Christian or a uh, spiritual growth seminar. And uh, it's a two-hour class, and all I do is assign them projects of, of meditation and their walk with God and, and this kind of thing. And I have them do this kind, these kinds of things. I, it's easy in seminary to, to chase a preposition through the centuries, you know, in, in your Bible study. And uh, they, need, uh, they need to be constantly reminded, God is a person, he wrote this to people, we're those people, what does he say to us, and why does it matter, and what change should it have in our lives? So, that answer your question, Tim? Okay, um, other questions? As they say in weddings, speak up now or forever go to pieces.
Okay. Good. I'm keeping this on because we are recording this, so whatever you say will be held against you. <clears throat> Question, though. I've got a lot of follow-up questions if you don't. All right. So, oh, oh, over here. Oh. Thank you very much for uh, what you shared this morning. Um, one uh, challenge that I have, or a question that I have, I, I work as a, a, what I hope is you know, a Christian approach to business. And one of the challenges that I hear from a lot of Christians who are in business, and one that I face myself, is that constant challenge you were describing of uh, the financial pressure, especially for folks who own their own business, that need of you know, coming home and seeing the family and saying, man, we've got to keep food on the table. We've got to provide for the family, which ultimately we know comes from God. And at the same time, we see that sometimes, you know, if you put in those extra two hours in the day, you can keep more food on the table. Um, what are the ways that you encourage Christian business people to be able to balance those constant financial pressures with the need to, you know, surrender all of this to the Lord, keep pursuing Him? You know, and the reality and the practical aspects if folks are working 14 plus hour days, you know, what are, the, what are the practical steps or advice you would give Christian business people as they're trying to keep surrendering their work to the Lord? Well, that's a great question. <clears throat> and um, several thoughts come to my mind, and uh, they won't be in any kind of order here. Um, but as, as far as a time management thing, how much time do I spend over there? How much time do I spend? This is one of my troubles when I began uh, because as a, as a husband and as a new administrator, I wanted to do well. And this was a new office. It had never been created before. So there was a lot of work to do. And I, uh, our families, back in those days, this is uh, early 80s, um, our, the university faculty and staff, we ate our meals in the dining commons. So we would take our children as part of our benefits. There was very little cash flow, but we had everything we needed. Uh, there just wasn't any cash to spend. But we, um, so we, we would take our daughters to the a dining commons at seven in the morning and, um, and then walk them over to the the, uh, the child development center where they would spend the morning while my wife worked part-time in the mornings. And then I would meet them for lunch, pick up the kids, and we would go to the dining common again. And then we would, uh, I would take them home. We lived on the campus. And then, and then uh, I would go back to the office. I'd come home for supper. We did eat our evening meals at home. Then I would go back to the office till about 11 o'clock. And I did that for a couple of years. And um, my wife was beginning to have some physical problems. She's basically raising three preschoolers all by herself. And, um, and I was physically worn out, spiritually tanking. And um, and what, what I had to do was to, through the word of God, for God to show me... Um, what I, I, I come from a farm, so I think in those analogies, but I had to be, my, my responsibility was to be a faithful farmer. And, and um, in, in, in farming country, you, you plant and, and uh, cultivate and fertilize and 
uh, all of that. And um, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, I, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. We are laborers together with God. And, and I think the biggest lesson that I had to learn out of that is that I am responsible only to be faithful. I am not responsible for outcomes. Now, that's, that's, that, gets a little, that gets a little harder to manage when, when the outcome is a paycheck. I, I, my outcomes were changed lives, which can't be measured in that, in, in that kind of thing, and, and a contented staff and a trained staff and, and all of those things. But um, I, had to, I had to come to the point where I realized my, my job is to be faithful with my input, with my time, and and I, but I have the Lord of the Harvest determines whether it's thirtyfold, sixtyfold, or a hundredfold. My job is not to determine the amount of the harvest. It's to determine. My job is to be faithful in everything God has given me. That doesn't mean you don't work for improvement. It doesn't mean there are times when you have to spend a little extra time to do that. But I, but I tell you what I found out is that the thing that messes me up more than anything else is when. Uh, as somebody said, um, our problems aren't with our priorities. Our problems are often with our posteriorities. Um, the things I, I don't get messed up on the big things of life so much. I get I, I have all these other things I want to do down here because I owe it to myself and I need a break and you know all this kind of thing. Th- those can be enormous time consumers. And I and I and those are the things I don't need. So. I, I watch very few movies. I watch, I, I, I don't watch any ball games. That's not because I have a conviction against that. I, I'm just, I, I haven't ever been into sports, but, um, but there's just a lot of that stuff that we just don't do because they're more important things. The, the, the discipleship of my children and the impact of ministry that are more important that I'm here on a short amount of time and my life must be invested in those little people. I, I, wanted, I wanted to write when I was 25 years old. I, 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 I love reading and I wanted to write. And God would give me no freedom to write. I, um, and I fussed at God about that. I, and and um, I was reading a chapter in Gordon McDonald's book called The Effective Father. I was flying back from speaking up in Michigan and I'm in this plane, I'm reading this book, and it's about Joseph. Uh, the, the chapter is about Joseph, and it's called, I Accept the Mandate. Here's a father who didn't get to choose a lot of things. I mean, th- Jesus was supposed to be his apprentice as a carpenter's son, and he didn't get to do that with his son. And then he doesn't even get to live where he wants to live. He's, he's got to float all around the Middle East there because of this little boy in his family. And Gordon MacDonald said, Joseph accepted the mandate that his job was to create the environment of safety and nurturing for this, this baby that would be the savior of the world. And God just crushed my spirit. And, and it was as if God was saying, Berg, you have a wife and three children to disciple. And you better focus on that. And I, I wrote a letter to God on hotel stationery in that flame. And I said, dear God, I will not do this. I will not write. I will surrender that until you give me the freedom and the license to do that. I don't, 
And basically, I don't have a dog in this fight anymore, your loving son, Jim. And I was liberated. I, instead of this agitation, I, when am I going to get to do this and this kind of thing? It's a good thing I didn't write anything when I was 25. <clears throat> I would be apologizing for it, I'm sure, all, all the rest of my life. <clears throat> but there are phases in life where something, and unfortunately, the time when you're launching your ministry or business is also the time when you're raising a family. And you will spend time with your children. You will either spend time on the front end discipling them, or you'll spend a lot of time trying to rescue them on the back end, but you will spend time with your children. I, as dean of students, I've met with a lot of parents where I had to discipline a son or a daughter or send them home or something, and I remember a guy, I had to expel his son, and and um, he knew his son had a lot of troubles, and he, he leaned up on my desk and put his hand on He said, I, I would give my right arm for my son. And I thought, I, and, and he would. And I thought, you are, all of us are going to give our right arms for our children. We're either going to do it ahead of time, or we're going to wish to God we could later on. But discipling people takes time. And that was the impression God really drilled into my soul through that, is that now is the time to invest in my wife and children. And if I have to do something else to supplement things or whatever, we're going to do that. But these people come first. And, and that means a lot of extra things. There are a lot of... I, I love everything. I, I love almost anything I get into. I, I just love it. And I have so many interests I want to explore... But I can't, because there were little people that needed a daddy. And so I would come home, and I would help put them in the bed, and then I would go back for a couple hours, and I would come back in. And eventually, after the office was established, that leveled out some, and then the staff began to grow, and then working on staff training. And Eventually, I put a, we had a little closet, about five by seven closet, in our house, and I turned that into a study. And, um, but I, and my, by, my daughters were in high school by that time. And I told my wife and my daughter, when I close the door, I'm, I am studying for something that needs to come up. But you are more important than any of that. If you need me, I am here for you. And they respected that. And oftentimes, there, sometimes there would be this knock on the door and say, Daddy, can we talk? And if your teenage daughter says, can we talk, you better talk. It's going to take you two or three hours, but you better talk. And um, junior high girls have a lot of worse days of their lives. And so you just work through those. But, so there are phases in life where things change. But I just had to keep coming back to the priority. These, these, these little image bearers are the first responsibility. And the most important thing I can do for them is disciple my wife because she's spending more time with them than I am. I don't know if that answers your question at all. My, my situation was not business but I, but I would say we've got to look at the people God's put us in our lives. Those, those have to come first along with God. And then I've got to throw whatever time he gives me into whatever ministry and business he's given me. But my anxiety comes because I assume responsibility for outcomes. And I, I, I think of a farmer in South Dakota. Let's say we have this controlling farmer and we have this faithful farmer. A lazy farmer doesn't even get out and plow. But, but, um, uh, but both the controlling farmer and the 
uh, faithful farmer do the same things. They know the soil, they know the hybrid seed they're putting in, they know the germination rates, they know the fertilizer rates, they know the pH of their soil, they know all of that stuff, and they put that in the ground, and both of them work diligently for it. One, a faithful farmer saying, God, I'm doing, I'm stewarding what you've given me to do. The, the controlling farmer is doing what he does to control an outcome. And in July, we don't get a lot of rain in South Dakota, but in July, sometimes we would get a hailstorm, and a hailstorm can leave your corn that's knee-high or more in shreds, and there is no crop. And a controlling farmer looks at all that loss and stands on his porch, and he's shaking his fist at God. I did the right thing. Where are you coming through? And the faithful farmer stands on his porch looking at that shredded field with tears running down his eyes and saying, God, I honestly thought that corn crop was going to get us through the winter. But apparently you have another way you're going to supply for us this winter. But as David said, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. And Father, I will continue to seek first your kingdom and the righteous living that you want for me in this kingdom, and I will let you add whatever you want to my life. That's the faithful farmer. They both work hard. But who you're doing it for comes out is exposed when you have enormous losses in this. And then you find out who you were doing this for. Does that make sense? Uh, any follow-up on that? Uh, no, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay. <coughs> over here. Question over here? <clears throat> thank you. What was that last verse, by the way, the one you said just now? That's not what my question is, but uh, um, <laughs> well, I'm, the, begging I'm sorry, for begging for bread. Oh, what? Psalm, Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so this I can't is my remember question. what I quoted. <laughs> sorry. Um, so this is my question. Um, the other day I was, I own a landscaping company. And so this time of year, we're always overworked, understaffed. It's almost impossible not to be, but, um, we had something where I had accidentally overbooked us almost catastrophically on something that had two separate deadlines that ended up colliding horribly. And just in the nick of time, and I was, I was praying for God's help, we, uh, we got one extra person on board. We needed two, but one was enough to fix the immediate problem, get through the next day. And uh, you know, I was telling my wife, I was, uh, and wow, praise the Lord, he, uh, he sent us this person who I already knew. I knew they were good. I'd actually used them part-time, but they came on full-time just in time for the project. I'm like, wow, praise the Lord. He sent us this person and we're going to make it. We're going to, you know, pay this bill, fix this problem, make that client happy, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I kind of realized that evening and the next morning that even as I gave God the credit for sending me the person, my faith was not in God's plan for what I was going to do, but in that person and the fact that it would take it off my plate and make it doable. And so I was, actually had to Google it, I couldn't remember what it was, but uh, it's Psalm 127 with, uh, what is it, you know, the, uh, if the builders build the house in vain, if God does not build the, the, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. And of course, the very next thing, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, 
and the fruit of the womb a reward. I've got two little girls and a wife, so. Um, and I went to bed at three, actually three o'clock yesterday and woke up at uh, five o'clock this morning to make it to the shop and then here. But what do I do with that now? Because, you know, the, how, how would you take that? How would you apply that? Especially the rise up early, go to late rest, eating the bread of anxious toil part of that. How, how do you then go about applying it? It's helping me refocus on, on God's plan for it, not mine, but what do I do with that now? Well, um, <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid um, a, a lot of times we are uh, reading the Bible and just, uh, well, preachers and, and counselors can, can dispense the Bible instead of ministering the Bible to people. And so, I, I, you know, I, I think what would be important would be to take a passage like that and memorize it and say, God, I, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Um, I have a one-track mind, and it's, it's, it's on this task in front of me. But I, I need you to intersect my one-track mind and remind me of your ways. But I, I tell the students, you can't go to the library and check out a book that isn't there. And God cannot use the word to direct and minister and calm and give wisdom if it's not there. Because we're not carrying around a Bible all day long. We're, we're doing our tasks. So I have to memorize it. I, I tell you, those passages in 2 Corinthians that I mentioned this morning, I, I, those walk around with me like my arm. I mean, I would no more leave 2 Corinthians 1 passages behind than I would leave my arm behind when I came here this morning. It's just a part of you. And when God opens it, when you're meditating on his word and memorizing his word, and he opens your eyes with illuminated understanding, and you see the beauty of it, and the truth of it, and the power of it. It does settle your soul. This is you got this, God. I'm, I'm, but but it's got to. It's it's his words that are going to transform us. His spirit is going to use his words. So, for me to make this a reality under these pressures, where. In human weakness, we do really mess up. We do double book and we, we overbook and we do, we do things like that. Um, or we forget to do something really important and, and, um, and it causes a lot of stink. You know, I, I was mowing the lawn yesterday before we left and I thought, boy, it's been months before I checked the, since I've checked the oil on this lawnmower. I need to, you know, and I, I grew up in a mechanic's home, so that, that's supposed to be almost every time you check it. And I thought, I, I need to, when I get back, I need to check this and probably drain it and change the filter and all that stuff. And just a little bit of time is going to save me a whole lot of time and, and misery. And the time I spend in the Word is, if, that's, if, if that is a part of my soul now, then throughout the day, God's going to be bringing those thoughts to mind. And I'm going to be saying, yes, Lord, I see that. That applies here too, doesn't it? Yeah, thank you, Lord, for that reminder. And it, it changes how you, how you interface with your world because God is constantly interfacing with you through his words. But if the words aren't there, he has nothing to work with. So it, it's going to begin with much meditation. And, and then and we are going really, to do some really, really stupid things. And, and God knows what he's going to do with those two.
And that's where our soul has to say. And then we, have, then we have competitors. We have other people who don't like us and are complaining and trashing us online in our business, you know, or whatever they're doing. And you have no control over that. But God does. You say, God, I know what you've called me to do, and I'm going to do this. I need to respond kindly if I respond at all, because that's the way you've said. I need to represent you well. But we, our, our minds must be dominated and driven by the words of the living God or we are going to lean to our own understanding. Does that answer your question, Jonathan? I'll give you some direction. Any follow-up? Maybe specifically how to view, maybe specifically how to view, like, as a, from a perspective point of view, how do you put that into application? The, uh, you know, you, you build the house in vain if God does not build the house. I mean, and the same one, you know, go to bed late, and, or go get up early, go to bed late, when rest is a gift from the Lord. What I, mean, I, I get in general what it means, but could you dig in that a little bit deeper, maybe? Um, I would have to go back and look at that whole psalm, but um, as I was mentioning earlier, there, there are times when we're going to rise up early and go to bed late. Um, you know, I, I would have to. I would have to look at that psalm more um, to know that specific. Tim? You know, yeah, I, I wonder if one of the things he might be talking about, too, is the decision-making process of how he got into the mess. You know, you have less employees, more opportunity, and now you're kind of deciding, okay, I'm here. How do I, how did I get here? How do I avoid getting here again? Or is this faithfulness? Okay. Because <laughs> there's is more that, opportunity. Is that part of your question? If I'm building a house, do I frame all the walls on Wednesday? Do I split it up and frame half the walls now and half the walls next week on Wednesday? You know, it's, <clears throat> well, part, part um, wisdom uh, in any realm is, is skill. So when Solomon is building the temple and he hires Hiram, who is a wise builder, it means, means he knows that well. W wisdom is skill. So biblical wisdom is skill at living. And, um, and we, we are often, uh, you know, we, we say we learn by our mistakes, uh, trial and error. Um, and that, that really is true. That's gonna, you and I do not come with all of the software, so to speak, of experience to make the right decisions every time. But we do learn from those decisions. And I think what we have to expect is that I, I am going to make bad decisions. Hopefully I'm going to learn from those as we go along, but there's no way to avoid my humanity and the weakness of it. I am going to make those mistakes. And I am going to say um, the, the, the wrong thing sometimes in trying to uh, even just visit with somebody and I have no idea about their background and I'll say something. For example, I used to say um, when I would speak, I would say, everybody have a handout here. We live in a welfare society. Everybody wants handouts. You know, do you, you all have a handout? And, 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 but now I work with a lot of men and women who are homeless. I don't, I don't joke about handouts. Well, I, I learned that because, uh, because of some experience God brought into my life. I love the men and women that I work with, and I would not want to hurt them at all. And... Um, 
Or I would, I would, when I was preaching, I would joke about, you know, cats, you know, or something. And, and um, these are just the craps of my trade, okay? So I would joke about cats and uh, be, not being a cat lover. And, and you know, and, and there would be people who would snicker at that. And my wife came to me and said, you know, Jim, I, th- I think there are a lot of uh, people in every audience who really love their cats. And when you make a joke like that, you alienate those people. They're not going to hear what you have to say. Well, so you make so in my, my job of trying to reach the hearts of people, I, I've made mistakes and I've needed people to input into my life, my wife in particular, who's wonderful in, in helping me with that. And so I'm, I'm saying in your craft as well, you're going to make mistakes that actually hinder something, make it harder for somebody else. But you learn from those, and, and that's how you become wise in your craft. You learn from those mistakes, and you move on. You're not going to do it perfectly. And I'm not going to do it perfectly. But I have to be teachable and humble enough to take that input. Um, All I, right. I, I'm probably oh, not zeroing sorry. in exactly. Tim. One more question, then okay. we're going to wrap up. This okay. is John's question. Could you give me some... Could you give me some um, Feedback. Well, I know you're not in, but I'm in the recovery mode, I guess you would say, um, for my family. And um, I know you're um, not in that, but uh, any words of wisdom there that uh, I have three and they're all above 30. But um, that's what I'm in the recovery mode. I, I, I was wondering if you could give me a little bit. Okay, so. You're, you're asking... Well, I, I, I didn't do the um, teaching mode like I should have, I guess, to begin with. Okay. And so they're old and not open. They're out, and okay. they're not uh, living for the Lord. Okay. So I'm in the recovery mode in that sense of okay. having contact with them now sure. and just want to do the right things. Okay. Uh, let me point you to a couple of resources. Um, Mark Shaw is um, a wonderful biblical counselor. He's, uh, he's worked in uh, professional practice as an addiction counselor in uh, Louisiana, Mississippi for years and uh, got it, then got into biblical counseling. And he's, he's written a book called Divine Intervention. Divine Intervention by Mark Shaw. You know, in the, in the recovery movement... Um, Intervention is when you, all the stakeholders of your life get together and confront you about how you're messing up everything. Well, he talks about a divine intervention. How, how, does, how, how do we minister uh, the Word of God to them? And, and it's a, a great book. For, it's, it's called, the subtitle is Hope and Help for Families of Addicts. And he walks through, here's some things you definitely don't want to do. Here's some things you do want to do. And he's particularly addressing for adult children or uh, uh, addicts. That book is a, is a I, I use that in one of my grad courses as a required textbook, um, Divine Intervention by Mark Traw. He has another book called The Heart of, of, um, the Heart of Addiction. Uh, and that's his, kind of his premier work, The Heart of Addiction. I would point you to those two resources. Um, I, I'll t- tell you a little bit about how we approach addiction. When I work with our, our newcomers, the people who have come for the first time, and I give them a, 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 a talk about what we're doing, I'll tell them, you're going to hear me talk um, very little. I'll probably never, in a, in a class meeting, I'll probably even never mention the word sobriety. 
And I said, because our goal isn't sobriety. You can be sober and miserable. You can be sober and a thief. You can be sober and adulterer, but you can't be like Jesus and be any of those things. So our goal is how do we become like Jesus? This is a discipleship program. We're going to study the Bible here together, and we're going to find out how we're like Jesus and how to become like Jesus. And I tell them, mature Christians, our goal is for us to become mature Christians. Mature Christians are tempted to sin. Mature Christians um, do sin, but mature Christians are not dominated by any sin. If you're a mature Christian, you know how to handle trials and you know how to handle temptation successfully before God. So our goal is how do we become mature Christians? How do we become more like Jesus? And um, our goal is way, way, way beyond sobriety. And I, I, I almost never ask any of the men I'm working with, did you use this week? I want to know if he's in the word and what God is saying to him. And it's, it's kind of... It's, kind of ironic when I was dean of students I would have to send somebody home if they use drugs or alcohol now I rejoice if he only did it twice this week <laughs> you know it's kind of a different context but um, I mean, because that's progress but um, but we we really just push for Christian maturity um, the the most helpful works that um, uh, the people working with our addicts use beyond our curriculum is um, they go through quite a noisy soul with men and women. Because they're, they're even this, I, I did my uh, doctor of ministries at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in uh, D-Men and in biblical counseling, and my emphasis was on addiction. And so I did a lot of research on, on the secular views of it. It's very interesting that the secular world, on the research end of it, rejects the medical model of addiction entirely. That the medical model may be a great way of experiencing how you feel when you're addicted. Like if, you're, if you have the flu, you, you feel like throwing up, you throw up. You can't help that feeling once, you're, once you have the flu. But when, once you're addicted, you can't help some feelings. But, so the, the, the medical model explains, may reflect how you feel, but it does not explain how you got into it. And it's interesting, even in the secular research, that the reason people get into addictions is because they don't have a better way to live life and its problems than what the drug can give them, either an escape or pleasure or whatever. So we work on the front end. How do we solve problems? How do we, how do we walk with God? How do we learn how to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh? How do we walk through trials? We spend a lot of time in James 1 about trials. So... Um, Anyway, Mark Shaw's book will give you a good lead on those, those two things. Would you like to close us in prayer? Oh, I'd love to. All right. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have called us to come to you in our labors and in our states of heavy, being heavy laden. We thank you that you promise rest through the knowledge of you and your ways and fellowship with you. Lord, I pray for these men and women. Each of them are representing you in their spheres of influence, in their jobs, their vocations, their callings. And each of them has challenges living on a fallen planet. And Lord, I pray that you would, uh, through our time together here, refresh them to and remind them 
as I must remind myself to be seeking you with my whole heart. And you've said from whatever state we're in, if we would seek you, we would surely find you if we seek you with all of our hearts and with all of our souls. Help that to be our passion and our pursuit today as we serve you on this earth and whatever calling you've given us. Thank you for this time together. Minister to our souls throughout this day, we pray. In your precious name, we ask these things. Amen. All right. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you. Yeah.